think about the mystery of trials today. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day, to not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, from friends, from others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Hey, thanks for coming along with us today. Well, we're continuing in the series, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Our questions include, what is God in the business of doing with you and me? Stay with us. Our guests today are Jim Elliott and Ed McCulley, as they have a question and answer session for us. What does a missionary eat is the topic this time. Missionaries like Jim and Ed are not uh, immune to the problems of life that you and I deal with. Should we let our heart be troubled? Is there a lesson even in the bread that we eat? Here's part seven of His Eye is on the Sparrow. When the Sparrow Falls is the name of this one. Well, God allows us, he gives permission for us to feel discouraged, for us to feel lonely for the shadows to come, for the unfulfilled longings. We live in a fallen world. We have a Heavenly Father who does care for us and he never allows anything to happen in our lives which is not out of his purpose of love. Could he prevent the shadows and the longings and the loneliness? Yes, he could. Does he? No, he doesn't. Do you trust him? Will you obey him? These things, these negative things, are the necessary condition for our sanctification. What is God in the business of doing with you and me? He wants to make us holy. And that's what I want more than anything else in the world. I think I can say that honestly. I want to be holy. I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus was very plain, very, very forthright. He didn't mince any words when he told his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. So what else is new? We have tribulation and then we say, why Lord, why me? But our question should never be, why me? It should always, if you must ask a question, be, why not me? Uh, who do I think I am that I deserve to be exempt from the difficulties and the sorrows and the sufferings of the world? It is the necessary condition for God's curriculum, which is our spiritual sanctification. This book, Discipline the Glad Surrender, it's just part of God's curriculum. If we are going to be holy, then we have to bring under the Lordship of Jesus Christ our time, our work, our possessions, our mind, our bodies, our emotions. And if you hear Gateway to Joy, you probably hear the same things over and over and over again because God is dealing with me over and over and over again on all of these things. And it's, it's a matter of shame to me that I am such a slow learner when I think of the privileges that I've had since the day I was born, 
greater privileges than very many uh, than most of you could possibly have had, I think, because I was born in a very, very strong Christian home where both my father and my mother were seven-day-a-week kind of Christians, and Jesus Christ was head of that house. Over the doorbell of our front door, there was a little bronze plaque that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. So anyone who came up onto that porch and rang that doorbell had some clue as to what kind of a family lived in this house. And it was true, it was worked out, it was lived out. Well, I had not only those parents, but I had a good church. I was given great riches of books, wonderful books, missionary books. We had hundreds of missionaries visiting in our home. We went to missionary meetings. We looked at missionary slides. We read missionary books. Missionaries were my heroes. And all my life, I hoped that God would enable me to be a missionary or give me permission. And as long as I can remember, that was my great ambition. But God's curriculum in includes some very tough lessons, doesn't it? The writer of the hymn says, let not your heart be troubled. These tender words I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose all doubt and fear. For by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Now the first line of that second stanza is a command, isn't it? And it's straight out of the Bible. It's not just from that hymn writer. Let not your heart be troubled. Now how in the world am I supposed to do that when something happens that troubles my heart? It's an emotion, and it arises unbidden. You and I cannot summon good emotions, nor can we dismiss bad ones necessarily. We are people of emotions, and that was God's idea, wasn't it? It's one of the aspects of our humanity. We have emotions and we have will, and these are two contradictory forces very often. Bringing those emotions under our will, and by our will, bringing them under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a severe and difficult lesson, and one that we have to be given over and over and over again. But I was very comforted when I asked myself this question, how am I supposed to not be troubled about something that's extremely troubling? I noticed in John 12, in the context of one of my life verses, verse 24, Jesus says something very interesting. I'll start with verse 24. Jesus is talking to the people, who, to his disciples, Philip and Andrew, when they came to tell Jesus that there were some Greeks that wanted to meet him because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, anybody would want to meet somebody who could raise someone from the dead. But Jesus gave them a very surprising answer because the earthly glory that he would receive from being able to raise someone from the dead was, of course, understandable, and the whole world would come flocking after him to see a miracle worker. But Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. 
but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And here, of course, he is, in a very picturesque way, predicting what's going to happen to him very shortly. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And then in verse 27, he says, now my heart is troubled. And he says, let not your heart be troubled in John 14. My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Now, this is the clue of what you and I can do and what we are told to do all through scripture. It's not a question of how you're feeling about something. It's perfectly normal and human that you should be troubled about many things. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And what does Jesus teach us here? My heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The emotion was human, and Jesus was human, and he suffered as a human being. But the decision was a decision of his will, and that was, Father, glorify your name. And that's what he wants to say to you and me. Let not your heart be troubled. These tender words I hear. Did Jesus know what it's like? Yes, he did. He was in all points tempted, as you and I are. Janet Erskine Stewart wrote, I know that when the stress has grown too strong, thou wilt be there. I know that when the waiting seems so long, thou answerest prayer. I know that in the crash of falling worlds, thou holdest me. I know that life and death and all are thine eternally. And my dear friend Samuel Rutherford, whom of course I never met, Samuel Rutherford was back in the 1700s. If you have never read anything by Samuel Rutherford, get your hands on anything you can find. Everything, every line he wrote is a gem. And every one of them is quotable. There, there are, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but there have been a number of collections of the Samuel Rutherford letters. It's spelled R-U-T-H, as in Ruth, E-R-F-O-R-D. This is what he says, be content. Ye are his wheat growing in our Lord's field. Now remember Jesus' words in John 12, 24, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Ye are his wheat, and if wheat, ye must go under our Lord's threshing instrument. What do you expect if you're a grain of wheat? Ye must go under our Lord's threshing instrument in his barn floor and through his sieve and through his mill to be bruised as the prince of your salvation, Jesus, was, that ye may be found good bread in your Lord's house. You ever stop to think about that when you eat a piece of bread? 
That had to be a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat, that falls into the ground and dies. Because if the, if the seed itself doesn't die, there isn't any life that springs up. But as the seed dies, the life springs up. It abideth alone if it doesn't die. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And then, of course, it has to be harvested. And it has to be ground. And it has to go into the oven. And you and I are meant to be broken bread and poured out wine. When the Sparrow Falls, part seven in our 11-part series, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Right now, let's hear from Jim Elliott and Ed McCauley as we think about the uh, diet of missionaries. I'll let Ed McCauley ask the question of Jim. Jim, this question may be along the practical line, may be of uh, more interest to the housewife, but uh, I think perhaps the folks back home would be interested in what you eat down there at Shandy, at least what you have been eating up to now. Well, that's not only of interest to the housewife, it's a very pertinent problem. Uh, even we bachelors are concerned with it occasionally. <laughs> we um, start off in the morning with a plate of, of banana mush. It's fine mush, as good a mush as you'll ever get in the States, but you don't get it out of a box. We have an Indian cook. He gets up about five in the morning and cooks our breakfast. What he does is slice up some bananas and fry them. We eat them like crackers. And then we eat these with this, with this mush. And then we usually have a cup of Nescafe, and uh, that's breakfast. Come around 10 o'clock in the morning, if you're thirsty, we can cut open a fresh pineapple and just eat three or four slices of pineapple to, to cool you off. Noontime, we have usually a plate of bean soup. If there's any meat been killed, a bird, or, or um, maybe a taper, or maybe a deer, or maybe some little ground animal, we have that for lunch. That's stuck in the soup and boiled up with it. Beans, and then we have yucca sticks, something that the housewife at home wouldn't know anything about, but a delicious thing that serves to us for potatoes, a starchy vegetable that grows under the ground like a root. Very good eating, especially if you have butter to put with it. We have bean soup then and yucca sticks, and sometimes when the airplane comes in, we have carrots. And we usually eat as many raw foods as we can when we, when we can get them uh, in there, especially raw vegetables, lots of raw fruit already in there. But that'll be included for our salad, I suppose you'd say, in the noon meal. Evening meal, it's usually white rice or maybe lentils, or maybe we'd have uh, mashed yucca patties or... Um, Maybe we'd have dry beans or something like that. It uh, doesn't vary much. You can pick out from beans and from corn on the cob and from yucca and from bananas uh, about all that we've got for a meal, except when the airplane comes in, like just now. Gwen Tidmarsh just told me at noon that she had bought us a basket of vegetables to take in for tomorrow so that we'll have green vegetables over the weekend, Lord willing, and uh, that will vary our diet considerably. The airplane comes in about every two weeks and usually brings in things like butter. Sometimes some kind motherly-hearted missionary sends us in a loaf of bread. We enjoy, we enjoy that along with the vegetables that come in with a little mission plane. I don't think you'll starve down there, Ed. There's a possibility, but I doubt it very much. We have most interesting foods that really you can't describe to people at home. You can say that they're, what their color is, but you can't describe the taste because we have no fruits that even compare with them in the States. You've had here, for instance, the chirimuyo. The chirimuyo is a fruit that actually means the cool ball in Quechua. It's a very refreshing fruit that the Indians enjoy more here in the Sierra and down along the, uh, 
foothills than really out in the forest. But we have lots of little fruits like that, little things that look like oranges and taste like apples, or uh, a long pod-like fruit that looks like a big bean but tastes like that cotton candy we used to get in carnivals, things like that. Uh, we enjoy them, and I think you will too. Jim Elliott and Ed McCauley there. What do missionaries eat? Hey, coming up later, we'll hear from a friend of Elizabeth as she talks about uh, simple marital advice that she received. Right now, it's part eight in His Eye is on the Sparrow. As we think about the mystery of trials, as we continue thinking, what is God doing? What is his purpose in my life? There is a mystery between the things which must happen here on earth and the will of God. Now, for some reason, birds must have lice. (laughs) Now, this loving God who values the sparrows and loves them and sees the sparrows fall and loves you and me allows things like that to happen. So we're up against this inscrutable mystery of the necessity of these things happening in a fallen world and the loving will of God. And that is a mystery which has occupied my thinking, I would say, practically unceasingly since 1956, probably since 1952, which was my very first year as a missionary. And some very stunning things happened in my first year as a missionary. Preparation, sort of the kindergarten lessons for the event which took place in 1956 that most of you know about, the massacre of five American missionaries, including my husband. Jim. And of course, the Christian world was electrified, disturbed, horrified, and wanted to know why. Why would God let a thing like this happen? And I was disturbed when people sent me all the Christian magazines, and I would say that every Christian magazine I had ever heard of had an editorial and an article or two about this incident in Ecuador. And the thing that disturbed me was an attitude which seemed to be prevalent among Christians. If God lets these five men get killed, then God has got to save the Alka Indians. God has got to prove himself to us. He has to vindicate himself. And in that time of darkness, I was saying, and what if he doesn't? What if no Alka Indian ever gets saved? Then what do I make of God? And of course, most of the bad things that happen in this world, we never see any good come out, of, come out of them. Now, there has been all so, many, many different things. There have been many different things which God has allowed us in his mercy to see as wonderful things that have happened which would not have happened had it not been for the death of those five men. Humanly speaking, they would not have happened. I mean, these seem to be the direct result, for example, Uh, the many hundreds of people who have told me how their lives have been changed by the testimonies of those men. And I could mention three extremely well-known radio speakers whose combined audience would be in the millions easily. And each of those three men has told me that it was the testimony of Jim Elliott and or of the five men that set the course of their lives radio ministers whose lives were changed by that. But I go back to this question, and what if God doesn't explain? He has never explained to the poor birds why they have to suffer lice, as far as I know. Maybe he has. 
it's necessity and will, the, the holy, perfect will of God and the necessity of what happens in a fallen world. Now when Daniel was given up to the will of God, Daniel had to go into a lion's den, a horrible thing, which was the result of his obedience. He was utterly secure in God's purpose. Now, of course, God knew what he was going to do with those lions. Daniel didn't know. Daniel had to suffer the mental agony from the moment that he knew he had been betrayed to the king till the moment that he went into the lion's den. And have you ever stopped to think, where does a lion start chomping? Does he start on your face? Or just on an arm or a leg? I don't know what went through Daniel's head, but I can certainly imagine what would have gone through mine. Was there a single moment when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not shown the right way? Didn't the Apostle Paul worship the divine will when he was bound in chains in prison? Yes, he did. And remember that when Paul was bound in chains in prison, he wrote the epistle of joy. And he said, in Philippians, that epistle, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And here he was bound, as scholars tell us probably, to a guard on his right and a guard on his left 24 hours a day chained to those guards and content. God's will and the necessity that comes through sin. The third stanza of this lovely little hymn is whenever I am tempted, whenever doubts arise, when joy gives way to sorrow and hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Have you had an experience in which you could not help thinking that God must not have been paying attention? He just must have been distracted at the moment. His eye was on something else. He would never allow something like this to happen. But he could and he did. He could and he would and he did. And Satan's master stroke is to persuade you and me to doubt to believe that God is really not up there after all. He's not watching those sparrows and he doesn't give two hoots for you. That's what Satan would love to get us to believe. And again, we turn our thoughts to our Lord and Master, to our Holy Savior, who knew exactly what you and I would have to go through. And in Hebrews, we have many, many, many verses which we could refer to that prove this to us. And the second chapter particularly tells us that it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? In verse nine, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now stop and think of that. This Jesus who created the stars, now limited because 
He was given a human body. He was made a little lower than the angels, which is what man is, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Read that whole chapter and ponder it, especially if right now you happen to be going through some major trial. And one more verse is from chapter 4, verse 14 in Hebrews. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Tempted in every way, just as we are. That's Satan's master stroke to convince us that God doesn't know what he's doing. Part 8 of His Eye is on the Sparrow. That's called The Mystery of Trials. Well, before we go, let's hear from Jean Hamilton, a friend of Elizabeth. She says that Elizabeth had some simple marital advice for a friend. She was speaking in South Carolina in another town and um, went up to hear her speak. And then at that time, Valerie lived in the Greenville area. She and Lars were going up there afterwards. And as it turned out, she was able to ride with me and some of my friends who come to her speech. And one, one especially wanted to hear, wanted her advice on whether she should marry a certain fellow or not, you know. And um, and so she rode with us, and then um, and then got to go to my friend's house there for a while. And then, you know, we made connections with Lars and everything. And that was, I mean, you know, she would just do things like that. And I remember she said, well, is he a Christian? Well, are you a Christian? Well, then it's okay to marry him. I, mean, I think that's what she said to the friend. So. Longtime Charleston friend and former professor at the College of Charleston, that was Jean Hamilton. Hey, it's great to have you joining us, whether you're listening to the podcast or maybe checking out uh, YouTube, where we have uh, currently over 53,000 subscribers. In the last year or so, 1,500,000 views. Hey, if you're one of those who's checking out YouTube and the Elizabeth Elliott feed, thank you. And thank you for joining us today, right here. Yes, thanks for letting us come in with you as you maybe took a walk, maybe in the home or your office. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org and our YouTube and other outlets for the ministry of God's Word. 
Check out elizabethelliot.org for more devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and other resources. elizabethelliot.org Until next time, may God remind you each and every day that you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms.